0: 19th century evangelist and author D.L. Moody once said, I've never met a man who has given me as much trouble as myself. (laughs) I've said it many times before, you're as close to God right now as you want to be. That's a fact. You're as close to God right now as you want to be because the only person who can ever keep you from God is you. The fact is, we give far too much credit to the devil for our problems when in reality, most of our troubles can be traced directly back to decisions we've made that God was not in the center of. Why? Because of the distance between us and him that we've allowed to develop in our own hearts. And yet, because we believe in God, well, I think it's easy to miss the fact that sometimes our hearts may be far from him. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not really difficult to find people today, particularly in this country, especially in this part of the country, who say they believe in God. It's actually quite common for people in our neck of the woods to profess some kind of faith or belief in God. And I mean in the Christian God, in Jesus Christ. What is... I think far more difficult to find, however, are people who actually have Jesus Christ at the center of their lives because we live in a culture that offers us so many other gods that we can focus on instead of Jesus Christ. Of course, we don't, we don't necessarily think of uh, money or career or morality, right, or family, or religion, or addictions, or hobbies, or material things. We don't normally think of those things as gods, and yet that's exactly what those things can become the moment they take the place of Jesus Christ at the center of our lives. It's what we talked about last week, the fact that every single one of us is ruled By something. We all bow to something in our lives, whether we're willing to admit it or not. We all have something that drives us, that motivates us, that inspires us, that captivates us, and most of all, that demands our focus above everything else. And whatever that is, right? Whatever is truly at the center of your life, if it is anything other than Jesus Christ, then you've actually made that other person or that other thing your God. Because it occupies a place in your life that should be reserved for Jesus Christ alone. You'll remember from last week, we talked about the fact that there's a throne at the center of every human heart. And whoever or whatever is on that throne is what rules your life. So one of the most effective lies ever perpetrated against God's people throughout history has been this idea that as long as we believe in God, that means he is our God. And yet scripture tells us and shows us that you can believe in God without him actually being your God. Probably one of the most well-known examples in the Bible is James, the brother of Jesus, who said, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder James 2.19, and actually James was pointing us back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, which was a Jewish creed about the importance of monotheism, this belief that there's only one God, as opposed to the Canaanites who were all around them who were polytheistic, meaning they believed in many gods. The point is, James was saying, listen, you can have an intellectual assent about the Christian faith. You can believe that there's only one God, and you can even believe that that God is Jesus Christ, which, of course, is good, But you understand, the demons believe that too. So obviously, believing that Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ actually being your God are altogether different realities. It's the difference between simply believing something to be true... And actually embracing that truth to the point that it transforms you. Right? It's the difference between a simple belief and a saving faith, which we're going to talk about more next week. Because look, there are, there are other religions today around the world that accept Jesus Christ as a God, one of many, right? So they worship him alongside many others. And there are also people right here at home who profess to be monotheistic Christians, people who believe there's only one true God, And they believe that that God is Jesus Christ, and yet they chase after many other gods in their lives at the same time because they've been led to believe in many cases by the church that as long as you accept that Jesus Christ is God as the truth, well, then he is your God. But again, a simple belief in factual information about Christ is not the same as a saving faith that brings transformation in your life through Christ. That's why scripture points out from one end of the book to the other that believing God is who he says he is and him actually being your God are two very different things. And it all comes down to who or what occupies that throne in your life. And as the apostle Paul uh, points out in his letter to the church in Rome, these are matters of the heart. Because yes, of course, there has to be a mental ascent. There does have to be a mental ascent, an understanding, certainly, and a conviction, a belief that Jesus Christ is the one true God. But Him actually being your God also means that you have to give not just your mind to Him, but your heart to Him as well. The result of which is reflected, of course, in how you live your life. It's a life of repentance and faith. We're going to talk about that next week. It's a life where you worship and follow Him to the exclusion of worshiping and following all of those other things. which doesn't mean we don't have some of those things in our lives necessarily. It just means those things are not on the throne in your heart because that place is reserved for Jesus alone. And, And to be honest, I think this is the far greater challenge facing the church today than there simply being a lack of believers or lack of people in the building in our seats right we have all kinds of articles and things we read there's sort of a state of panic about the shrinking size of the church in America now I think the much larger problem for the church is the sheer volume of people in our churches who profess to believe in Jesus Christ and at the same time refuse to allow him to occupy that throne to rule over their lives and so although they believe in Jesus they bow to something else And I say that in part because over many years in ministry, now about 30 nearly, I've met a lot of professing believers who've uh, entered into adulterous relationships or who refuse to contribute their time or money to the local church or who chase after material possessions while ignoring the needs of others or who pursue careers at the expense of their families and on and on and on it goes. But listen, I've never heard one of those believers, when I asked them about their faith in Christ, I have yet to ever have even one of them ever say to me, the reason I don't give to the church or the reason I'm pursuing this adulterous relationship or this material addiction or this career move at the expense of my family or whatever it is, the reason I'm pursuing that thing is because I don't believe in Jesus anymore. That's never happened to me. In fact, in every single case, they continue to profess faith in Christ while openly and consciously choosing to pursue paths in life which are undeniably not the will of God. And that's just it, you see. People usually don't reject their belief in Christ even when their hearts are very far from Him. It's also nothing new, as we're going to see today as we continue working our way through Romans where Paul continues his discussion on the state of the church by focusing on the state of the hearts of the people in the church as he calls them to not just believe in Jesus Christ as God, but to submit their lives to him that he might actually be their God. How? By learning to care about what God cares about more than anything else. So let's pick the letter back up where we left off last time. Romans chapter 2. We'll begin by reading the first 16 verses. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So in the first chapter of the letter, Paul goes to great lengths, you'll remember from last week, to highlight the sins of the most notoriously guilty among them. These were openly rebellious, professing believers living in deep sin that was obvious to anyone who was paying attention. And yet that wasn't the entire makeup of the church. In other words, not everyone among the believers fell into the long list of sinners that Paul lays out in chapter one, uh, at least not in appearance. There were many in the church who, by all accounts, appeared to be upstanding, well-behaved, got their act together, kinds of Christians. And so, Paul being Paul, not wanting to leave anyone out of the fun, now turns his sights on two other groups of people in the church, the first of which he addresses in the first 16 verses of chapter 2. These were the church members who were not necessarily Jewish. You will remember from the beginning of the letter that the church in Rome was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. So Paul isn't zeroing in on just the religious Jewish believers here. He actually saves that for the last half of this chapter, which we'll get to next. And so in this first half, he's addressing those in the church who, although they may not be particularly religious by upbringing or the routine practice, they are deeply concerned with morality. And because there was so much immorality inside and outside of the church in Rome in the first century, these highly moral people were looking down their noses at everyone else. Right? They were basically congratulating themselves for not being like the people described in chapter 1 who they were judging. And Paul is having none of it. You have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Well, why? Why is Paul taking the good Christians to task after pointing out just how bad so many of the others are? He says, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing ouch, Paul, <laughs> that hurts. Well, listen, it needed to be said, because the fact is, you can be a deeply morally conservative person without Jesus at the center of your life. One famous Gentile example was Seneca, one of Paul's contemporaries, a first century Roman politician. He was a Stoic moralist. Uh, Stoicism is a Greek pagan philosophy that focused on things like the natural world. Uh, Seneca was a teacher of morals. He was the personal tutor to Nero. He was the man who exalted the great moral virtues of the day. He exposed hypocrisy in others. He preached the equality of all human beings. He acknowledged the pervasive character of evil in their culture. He practiced and taught others how to practice self-examination daily. He re- ridiculed, vulgar idolatry. By all accounts, Seneca assumed the role of a great moral guide in his day. And yet he was not a Christ follower, at least not in the time of most of his writings, even though he was a deeply morally conservative person. And it was no different in the church. There were plenty of Gentiles in the church who, although not raised in Jewish religion, were deeply morally conservative. Conservative people, people who at the same time did not have Jesus at the center of their lives, and yet they were looking down on everyone else for their bad behavior. And so Paul says, in the same way you're judging others, you are going to be judged because you're just as guilty as they are. It may not show on the outside, but it's what's in here that condemns you. Bible scholar John Stott says, Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible, namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. (laughs) The 17th century political philosopher Thomas Hobbes wrote, people are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. This device enables us simultaneously to retain our sins and our self-respect. It's a convenient arrangement. So Paul, recognizing what was going on here, the fact that not only was there obvious, easily observable sin in the church, but there was also a not so easily observable sin in the church. Something equally as pervasive, insidious. He says, look, it's not about whether you're Jew or Gentile. It's not about whether your sin is in the open or in secret. It's not even about how morally conservative your outward behavior is. No, what matters is what's written on your heart because at the end of the day, the only person morally qualified to pronounce judgment over another person is God. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Rob doesn't judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Jim and Bob and Mary and Sue don't judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God does. In other words, as good as your outward behavior may ever be, being good isn't enough. Because your good morals will never be enough to save you or anyone else. It's not that they don't matter. Our behavior matters, but it's not enough. You can't behave your way into God's good grace, into heaven, because having good morals will never be a replacement for having a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you have no justification for judging other people's outward behavior when your own heart is far from him, no matter how morally conservative your behavior may be. It's not enough to acknowledge him. You have to know him. In fact, I cannot think of any other question you could ever ask yourself more important than this one simple question. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? It's not a moral issue. It's a heart issue. Because every single aspect of our lives... And every moment of this life and the next for all of eternity is profoundly affected by the answer to that question, do you know him? That one question is so incomparably important that many of the greatest minds in all of human history considered it to be the only question that truly mattered. We just read this quote earlier from the Church Father Ignatius a week or so ago, recently, uh, as he was condemned to death in Rome in uh, AD 110, just before being led to the Colosseum, where he knew what was coming, where he'd be torn apart by wild animals, or burned at the stake, or tortured to death for his testimony about the Christ. He wrote these words just before going to his death, knowing what he was facing. He said, it is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one by being faithful to the end, then I can have the name come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Only let me get to Jesus Christ. You see, for Ignatius, even a violent death was a small price to pay if he could be truly known by Jesus Christ. And so in that moment, facing an unimaginable end, I don't think he was the least bit concerned with his moral standing in the community or in the church. I don't think he cared how foolish he would appear in front of others. No, the only thing that mattered to him in that moment was knowing Jesus and listen, that deep yearning to know God is actually present in every human soul. But sometimes we bury that yearning because we're more concerned about what others would think about us if we actually lived our lives sold out to Jesus. Right? How crazy! How foolish would it look to those around us if we actually lived like Jesus lived and so instead we try to fill that void, that yearning with outward behavior that no one would disapprove of in order to make ourselves feel better about the fact that our hearts are actually far from Jesus. That's where cancel culture comes from, by the way. In order to try and maintain a sense of moral superiority, we put other people down to try and make ourselves feel better about the fact that our hearts aren't any closer to Jesus than theirs. We just cover it up better than they do. Now look, I'm not saying that's where your heart is today. I don't know where your heart is today. I'm simply asking you, do you know him? Because at the end of the day, that's the only question that really matters. Knowing Jesus is the only recompense, the only restitution for our sin-stained souls. Knowing him is the only pathway to peace, the only way to salvation and transformation in this life and the next. Listen, knowing Jesus is the only thing that matters. Yet we spend so much of our time We spend so much of our time and energy and resources searching for meaning in all kinds of places and through all sorts of activities and philosophies and good moral practices. And yet apart from actually knowing Christ at best, we're chasing after temporary distractions, which in the end can never fill the hollow void in every human being who does not know God. Do you know him? I, I pray Actually, pray that question haunts the minds of every unbeliever until unable to escape it. They must confront the reality of either knowing Christ or being lost in blind hopelessness forever. Because as long as we fool ourselves into believing that true hope can be found by pursuing anything other than Christ, we're hedging the outcome of our eternity on a fool's errand. Do you know him? Listen, not do you know about him. That's a very different question. Most people today know something about Jesus, but that in no way means they actually know him. Do you know him? That question should be on the lips and at the ready of every follower of Christ as we encounter those who are searching for answers to life's biggest questions, including ourselves, if need be. Because there's no more important question for us to ask than do you know him? J.I. Packer says, once you become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Let's finish the chapter, verse 17 to the end. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are, you are instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, the religious people. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? not to leave anyone out of his scathing rebuke. Paul now turns his attention to the religious Jews among us who, who like uh, the morally conservative Gentiles, were judging others. But in the Jews' case, their judgment was not based on their moral behavior, but rather their religious behavior. The rules that they followed, religious rules. The Jewish people of Paul's day were extremely proud and equally as confident in the fact that God gave his holy law to them as a nation. And as such, they believed this confirmed their status as a specially chosen people and thus ensured their salvation. More specifically, the Jews believed that their circumcision guaranteed their salvation. They knew there might be some form of punishment in the world to come based on how well or how poorly they followed the law. But because of circumcision, they believed they could never actually be lost. In fact, in Paul's day, there were rabbis who actually taught that Abraham sat at the entrance of hell to make certain that none of his circumcised descendants went there because of the belief that all Israelites will have part in the world to come. That's a quote. So this was all a part of their religious beliefs, even though the very law that God gave them controverted their own uh, uh, interpretations of it, as evidenced in Deuteronomy 10, 16, which says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It was all the way back when he gave the law. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. In other words, salvation is not a matter of religious adherence. It's a matter of the heart. He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have uh, the written code and circumcision, but break the law for no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. Your good religious outward behavior no nor is circumcision outward and physical but a jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter it couldn't be clearer david gusick says this is god's answer to the one who says what about the pygmy in africa who has never heard the gospel God will judge that pygmy by what he has heard and how he has lived by it. Of course, this means that the pygmy will be guilty before God because no one has perfectly lived by their conscience or perfectly responded to what we can know of God through creation. The problem of the innocent native is that we can't find an innocent native anywhere. Paul's clear about it in the next chapter. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3 23. All are guilty. All are guilty and in need of salvation down to the last man. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're a slave or free. Doesn't matter if you're male or female, moral or immoral, religious or irreligious. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have a hope in this world. That's what Paul's trying to get across to these Jewish members of the church. No matter how religious you are, being religious isn't enough. It's not enough. Because the law we're bound by as Christians, the law of Christ, supersedes even our best moral and religious behavior. In Galatians 6, 2, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians nine twenty one, he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. What is the law of Christ. When Jesus was asked which commandment is most important of all, Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Mark 12, 28 through 31. By the way, when he starts out with the Lord our God, the Lord is one, he's also quoting the Shema. Okay, Matthew twenty two forty. 40, Jesus says on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Listen, it may not always be easy, but it's also not complicated. The law of Christ, the law that we are bound by as believers and followers of Christ is as simple as loving God and loving others. And according to Jesus, all the law and prophets, it's not that none of that matters anymore. He's saying all of those religious rules and good moral behavior in this world are meaningless without love, without loving God and loving others. In other words, if you distill the motivation behind every one of the commandments of God down to one, they all boil down to us loving God first with everything in us. Because if we get that one commandment right, everything else falls into accord, falls into place, including how we love and treat one another. Right, It stands to reason if God is truly your number one priority, if he's your first love, if you honestly long to please him more than anyone else, including yourself, then you'll naturally want to fulfill his commands because that's his will for your life. And if you love him more than anything else, then his will will become your primary concern above everything else. That's why it's the first and greatest commandment because all of the others are dependent on that one first loving God more than anything or anyone else in heaven and earth which actually raises some interesting questions. Like, uh, am I obeying that first and greatest commandment when I put myself before others? Right? Am I honoring that commandment when I chase after things in this world? Am I loving God more than anything else when I idolize a relationship in my life other than the one I have with Him? In fact, uh, when young men come to me which they often do, to ask me about what they should look for in a spouse. My first advice is always this. Every time I tell them, you find a woman who loves Jesus more than she loves you. Find a woman who loves Jesus more than she loves you. That's a good place to start. Now here's a question that can get uncomfortable when you ask yourself, is it possible for me to love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength by living the way I'm currently living? If the honest answer is no, then some things would have to change in my life for me to actually love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I ask myself this question often, and at times I have to make adjustments in my own life. Sometimes things need to change. Well, ask yourself, what are those things that need changing, and more importantly, Am I willing to make those changes? Okay, because I don't think as Christians we have a big problem actually with understanding what God wants from us. It's not complicated understanding. It, it's it's most of what Jesus and his disciples taught is really not that hard to understand. Our problem is generally not one of comprehension, it's one of apprehension. We're afraid of what our lives would really look like if we made all the changes necessary to pursue God's will for us with absolute abandon. Right. I mean, What if he wants me to sell my house and live in something else, somewhere else, so I can do more with the resources he's given me? What if he wants me to give up some of my favorite possessions so I can learn to hold on tightly to some other things that matter more to him, like time spent with him? What if he wants me to spend less time with my hobbies so I can spend more time serving someone else? What if he wants me to actually encourage and build up that person that I cannot stand to be around? instead of always trying to avoid them. What if God actually calls you to leave your current lifestyle or life choices in the dust so that you can pursue a calling that looks radically different than the life you're living now? I mean, those are unnerving thoughts for many of us. However, those thoughts can often turn into watershed moments in our lives when we learn to lay our apprehension down and go for broke in pursuit of God's will for our lives. But I'm telling you, you're not going to get there by willpower alone. Sheer determination won't carry you all the way through those kinds of life changes and the very real consequences that come with them. No, there has to be something else driving you, something far stronger and more compelling than just your own determination and what that something else is. Listen, the key to living the kind of life that wholesale abandons anything and everything that stands between you and God's will for your life, the key to that kind of life is the first and greatest commandment. You have to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Loving him has to overwhelmingly be your primary motivation if you're going to answer his calling for your life without quitting, without settling, without stopping short, without compromising or settling for something less and decidedly more comfortable, more acceptable to the people around you. Because that's, that's as far as you get with good intentions or good behavior. You get partway usually to the part where life starts getting uncomfortable and then we settle for something less than everything he's planned for us, okay? We we need more than good intentions and good behavior. We need to love God more than anything and everything else if we're going to carry out his perfect will for our lives and make a lasting impact in this world. It's a matter of the heart. And second only to that is loving others as we love ourselves. Now, look, if you... If you went out into the middle of town and asked a hundred different people what love is, you may well get a hundred different answers. Part of that is because of what they've been told about love, but most of that is actually because of what they've been shown about love. People believe what they believe about love based on how they've been loved, or in some cases how they've not been loved, which is precisely why Jesus said to his followers, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13, 35. In other words, Jesus was saying, look, look, fellas, you can tell the world all about what it means to be a Christian. But it won't mean much until you show them what it means to be a Christian. And the way you show them is by actually loving each other first the way that I've loved you. So as followers of Christ, we have to be more than just talk. And yet again, being a Christian is not solely about outward behavior either. Some Christians say the way we make disciples of Jesus Christ is by proclaiming the gospel to the world. Others will say the way we make disciples is by living out the gospel in front of them. I've actually had people argue with me tooth and nail about the fact that we never actually have to ever proclaim the gospel as long as we're living like Jesus lived, that people will just get it. Actually, you have to do both. Both are absolutely necessary. In fact, you cannot have one without the other and expect to be an effective witness for Christ because you can tell people what love is all day long. But if your actions don't reflect your faith, then no one's going to take your faith seriously at all. And yet you can model the love of Christ to people and how you live your life in a very authentic way that is clearly obvious, clearly felt by the people who you encounter. But if you do not couple that kind of living with the actual proclamation of the gospel, if you don't actually tell people about Jesus Christ, they won't magically come to know him on their own. No, you have to tell them about him. You have to tell them that he's the reason you are the way you are, which is also why it's so important that the way you live reflects who you say you are because the two go hand in hand. Jesus didn't just say by this all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He also said go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Mark 16, 15. And by the way, the word proclaim in that verse does not mean by your actions. It's the ancient Greek word keruso. It's the same word that was used to describe a herald or a public crier, the person in town who would make public pronouncements. It's also the word that's used throughout Scripture to describe those who would preach the gospel. So Jesus taught his followers to both live out the gospel and to preach the gospel. The two go hand in hand. And as always, Jesus practiced what he preached. When he entered a town or encountered new people, he immediately showed them the love of God. He fed them. He healed them. He counseled them. He comforted them. But he also told them why he was doing all of that. He always proclaimed. He always preached the gospel. Of course, people were often eager to listen. Not always. But often, they would listen. Why? Because he lived out what he believed. His actions and his words matched. So the fact that the world, those who do not follow Christ, the fact that they have many different uh, definitions and interpretations of what love is really should surprise no one because the world is broken, which means those who do not know Christ, those who have never experienced his love, cannot be expected to understand his love. So what we end up with is a world full of broken people with all kinds of broken ideas about what love is. Because at the same time, God didn't create a world full of robots, right? He created a world full of human beings with free minds to think and act and live largely by our own volition, our own choosing. Which means people are free to come to their own conclusions about what it means to love and to be loved. Yet the only hope The only hope they will ever have of knowing what true love is, is you. That's it. The only chance this world has of knowing what real love is, is by the church first loving them like Jesus first loved us. Then... When we proclaim the gospel to them, it carries an entirely different weight because of how we've loved them. And that's when the Holy Spirit takes over and does what only he can do in the hearts of men and women. See, that's his part. Our part is simply to love them enough to show them and to tell them what the love of Christ is. So the fact that the world has all sorts of misguided ideas about what true love is should neither surprise us or frustrate us. However, What should both surprise and frustrate us tremendously is the fact that within the church there's confusion today about what love is and what it means to share that love with others. And I'm just telling you the implications of that kind of confusion reaches far beyond just the church because if we can't get this straight among ourselves, well then what hope does the world have of understanding it? Right? If we cannot love each other well in the church, then we'll never reach the lost for Christ. Because you cannot love those outside of the church if you do not love those inside of the church. You may think you can, but you cannot. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. There's no reality Where a Christian can effectively love those in the world while simultaneously despising the church of Jesus Christ. And so the next question for you to ask is Do I love the church? Do I love the church like the martyrs have throughout the ages? Do I love the church like the apostles did who suffered for her? Do I love the church like Jesus did who died for her? Do I love the church enough to defend her from anything that would divide us? We must, if we're going to be who God created us to be, we must love the church enough to protect her from anything that seeks to divide us and that begins where judging each other ends because nothing tears the church down quicker than when we tear each other down. Right? So look, don't judge someone just because they sin differently than you. Right? I don't know who to attribute that quote to, by the way. It's not original to me. Uh, I saw it somewhere, but it's certainly appropriate. (laughs) Don't judge someone just because they sin differently than you. Now listen, there is an accountability, you understand, to one another. A form of judgment that we are to exercise within the church. Paul lays that out in another letter to another church, so that's another sermon for another day, and we'll get to it. But here his focus in chapter two of this letter is to take our focus off of other people's outward behavior and instead deal with the content of our own hearts first. Why? Because you can believe in Jesus while your heart is far from him. And look, for a time... You can distract yourself from having to confront that reality in your own life by exercising good moral behavior or good religious behavior. Of course, that's what people do every day to make themselves feel better about the fact that they have little to no real relationship with Jesus. But listen, moral superiority and religious fidelity only last as long as you don't mess up. You hear me moral superiority and religious fidelity only last as long as you don't mess up of course sooner or later we all mess up so at the end of the day listen no matter how we behave what matters more are matters of the heart why because your heart is what matters most to God. Let's pray.